Delayed satisfaction is one of the central ideas in the Christian life. And I say this because we believe, after all, that Jesus Christ is going to return and judge the living and the dead and bring in new heavens and new earth where there's no sickness or death or sin. That is an incredible future hope. But the fact that it's a future hope tells us that the fullness of life that we are promised is not yet here, that we live before the consummation of all things. And that means that our gratification and the fruit of our labors will not be fully realized in this life. I think this is why the New Testament often uses the imagery of agriculture to describe the Christian life. You think about the sower sowing seed, or you think about uh, the first fruits and harvest language that we see throughout Romans and the Gospels. Farmers have to labor day and night. They get up at the crack of dawn, and they're plowing the fields, and they're tilling the soil, and they're planting seeds, and doing all these kinds of things. They are remaining faithful, but there's no immediate gratification. They don't see crops immediately pop out of the ground once they put the seed into the soil. It takes months. It takes a long time. And they have in their mind that their present labor will result in future gratification at the harvest. And this is the heart of faithfulness. And this is the heart of Habakkuk, who remains faithful in suffering by setting his eyes on a future hope. He recognizes that His trials in the present are temporary and that the lack of gratification now will be fulfilled when the Lord acts on his behalf. But he's got to wait. Faithfulness is an exercise in hope. It draws us forward through the valley of the shadow of death into the green pastures of the kingdom. This is the hope that Christians have had for 2,000 years. And this is the hope that Habakkuk clings to. This is Understanding Habakkuk. The first chapter of Habakkuk, we see a prophet's lament over God's apparent indifference to Israel's suffering at the hands of the Chaldeans, or as they're commonly referred to, the Babylonians. And Habakkuk struggles not only to understand God's lack of action on behalf of Israel, but also his purpose in raising Babylon up in the first place. God takes credit. He says all of the military might and military victory that Babylon is experiencing is due to me raising them up. They would have no victory if I did not ordain it. And Habakkuk 2 records God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk is wondering, how can the holy and everlasting almighty God seem to sit idly while evil and wickedness are terrorizing his people? It's a struggle for him to work through. And God's response is very interesting. So listen to the ways that God addresses Habakkuk's lament. This is Habakkuk chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. 
It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk chapter 2 begins with what is actually the end of a complaint that Habakkuk starts halfway through chapter 1. It's actually his second complaint, and it bleeds through to the top of the second chapter. And he ends this first complaint with resolve. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk, at the end of his second complaint, his second lament, has this kind of steely resolve. He's going to be a guy on a watchtower. He's not going to sleep. He's not going to eat. He's just going to sit there and wait for God to respond. So he commits himself to wait on the Lord. Now, this is not some arrogant request for God to justify himself to Habakkuk. It's really an act of faith, an act of humility. Habakkuk is calling upon God, much like the psalmists do. They're calling God to be who he has promised himself to be. God says that he's the faithful God. He is the unchanging, everlasting God. He is the sovereign Lord. He has made a covenant with his people. And it's on that basis that Habakkuk is kind of tugging at God's sleeve and saying, Lord, this is who you have said you are, and these are the things that you have promised. 
And what's amazing is that God responds. God answers. And what he does is he he tells Habakkuk to grab a tablet and a pen. He tells him to to get himself to write down a vision. Now, this vision is basically a record to state what God is going to do. So when he writes it down, it's it's meant to, to put it on the record so that in future generations, when God delivers Israel according to this vision, they're going to say, oh, wow. He, he, he had said and promised that he would do it, and it happened. So writing down the vision is really important to help Israel recognize how faithful God is in future generations. So the vision is very simple. It is a vision of God's judgment of Babylon. This is the promise. God will judge Babylon, but it's going to be according to his appointed time, not Habakkuk's. So when God appears to drag his feet, the righteous respond with trust. That's why God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And notice God understands the temptation that his people face. They're tempted to doubt his goodness and his justice when his saving power and his salvation seems to be delayed. And he says, I know you're going to feel this way. So when you are tempted to believe that I'm not going to be just, that I'm just going to idly watch evil have its day, understand this that there is an appointed time when I will act. And if it seems like it's far off, just wait for it. It will surely come. In other words, trust the Lord because the righteous shall live by his faith. And this, this phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith, is really important. Notice it's contrasted with the man whose soul is puffed up. It's believing that you have within yourself the resources to save yourself or to uh, deliver yourself. You don't need God for anything. You're proud. And the contrast, again, is the righteous person who lives by his faith. Now, there's a debate over the right reading of verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the Hebrew text is ambiguous. His faith can refer either to the faith of the righteous person or the faithfulness of God. So the righteous shall live by either the faith that the righteous person possesses or the righteous shall live by God's faithfulness. I think the second reading is the best reading because of the way the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Romans 1.17. So if you flip over to Romans 1.17, Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 as the paradigm of the gospel. But what's interesting about the way he quotes this verse is that he removes his He removes the word his. Instead, he writes, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is this the case? Well, Paul is well-versed in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's called the Septuagint. So oftentimes in the New Testament, the apostles are quoting from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew phrase in 2.4 of Habakkuk is translated into Greek as The righteous shall live by my faithfulness. So you have these Jewish, Greek-speaking people. They're translating the Hebrew text, and the Hebrew text is ambiguous. Is it about the faith of the righteous person or the faithfulness of God? And it seems like the Jews who are interpreting this text choose option two. They think that the better reading of Hebrews 2.4 is that the righteous shall live by God's faithfulness. Now, when Paul quotes this verse, he again, he removes the pronoun. You don't really know which one he's leaning towards. 
I think it would make more sense for Paul to be saying the righteous shall live by God's faithfulness. I think he's taking a cue from the Greek translation as the right reading of Habakkuk 2.4. Okay, so it's a little complicated, but just to show you that sometimes these things aren't so cut and dry. But either way, the, the point is clear. Salvation comes to those who do not trust in themselves, those who are not proud or puffed up in soul, but those who trust in God, in the faithfulness of God. It's not about our faithfulness, it's about God's faithfulness. Now, we trust in the trustworthiness of God. So faith is not some vague sense of optimism. Faith is trusting in a faithful person. So Habakkuk trusts in the faithfulness of God to save his people, even though he appears at the present to watch idly as they suffer. And this is why God tells Habakkuk that if his justice seems delayed, wait for it. Or maybe to translate a little differently or, or to paraphrase a little differently, trust my trustworthiness, Habakkuk. So we don't trust in doctrines. We don't trust in methods of discipleship. We don't trust in church organization skills, however good these things may be. Ultimately, we trust in God who is faithful. Our whole Christian life lives and dies by the faithfulness of God to us. And we don't speak Hebrew. We don't live in Israel. We aren't citizens of the 7th century BC, but we do have access to the same faithful God that Habakkuk entrusted himself and his nation to. Now, God saves his people through judgment. He's going to save his people through the judgment of Babylon, just like he saved Israel through his judgment of Egypt and Noah through his judgment of the world by the flood. This is the way that God works. And the following vision unveils five woes of judgment that are divine reversals that give Babylon a taste of her own medicine. So when God judges a nation, it's proportional, it's appropriate. It, it almost has an ironic twist to it. So the first woe, God says he's going to plunder Babylon for plundering other nations. There's a reversal. Second, God's going to cause the stones, beams, and woodwork of Babylon's massive triumphant buildings. He's going to cause them to condemn their evil. They're going to witness against Babylon. Instead of testifying to their greatness, it will witness to their shame. Third, God will overshadow the vanity of Babylon by spreading his own glory over the entire earth. The fourth woe is God bringing his cup of wrath upon Babylon. So the great conquering wrathful nation of Babylon will herself be conquered and fall under the wrath of God. And finally, God condemns Babylon's idolatry. And he kind of mocks their idols, right? Your idols are man-made little metal figurines. They can't speak. They can't teach. They don't even breathe. And you're hoping that they will help you overcome the Lord. And the Lord is the one who sits in his holy temple, who silences the whole earth. It's just, they're totally outmatched. And I think this gives hope to the church in the present age. Our call is to be hopeful and enduring in faith. That means that it may seem as though God is slow to act despite our backs being against the wall, despite culture and, and the world and the hostility of, of what seems to be going on in our nation, in our country. There's a calm that the righteous people of God can have because they trust in the faithfulness of God. The Lord is in his temple. He will silence the world. He will judge. He will put things right. Even if at the present, it seems like everything is going crazy. He will save. He will redeem. And if it seems slow, 
Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay.